the speed of light is the speed limit of the universe. So that's one of the things that with science fiction you're able to play with is say, how do we get around that? That's where things like warp drive come in, or the Alcubre drive, if you want to get to the, the more scientific name. Um, warping space to move faster than the speed of light. Hyperspace, it, okay, there's a there's another universe alongside ours, and there's either portals to get through, or we can punch through, and we can move faster than the speed of light. Oh, uh, tachyons, we know tachyons, or we theorize tachyons exist, and tachyons are a above the speed of light particle that we can't interact with because it's always above the speed of light. Maybe if we wrap ourselves in tachyons, we can go faster. Welcome to Speculative Sandbox, your audio playground for creative storytellers. My name is Vicki Lawn, and each episode, I and a guest will unpack a fiction trope with an eye for character development and narrative structures. Make sure to look for Speculative Sandbox on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, where you can join the conversation. Leave comments or questions, or let us know what other tropes we should cover. When the real world just doesn't cut it, let's get lost in a fictional one. Have you ever wondered how close real-life spacecrafts are to the fictional ones? Maybe you plan to include spaceships in your manuscript, and you just don't know where to start. Author S.J. Shower is an expert on flying objects. From takeoff to ludicrous speed, we'll walk you through the science and the speculation of some of the most well-known spacecrafts in fiction and real life. Welcome, SJ, to Speculative Sandbox. I am really excited to get this conversation going. How about you tell me and the listeners about yourself and your latest projects? Uh, so I'm SJ Shower. I'm the writer-creator of the Spiral War universe um, with the main... <laughs> sorry. <laughs> with the uh, main series focusing on the Liberators, which is about a special operations rescue team uh, following them from their inception at the Academy onto the greater war beyond i'm currently working on the seventh book in the series just life has a habit of getting in the way lately yeah it does that it's annoying <laughs> uh yeah so yeah tell me about it <laughs> yeah okay uh i have some rapid fire questions to warm us up are you ready yeah, shoot. okay all right, we're going to start with some kind of totally off topic, and then we'll work our way into the topic. And today's topic is going to be on spacecrafts. But before we get there, what is your favorite month and why? Boy, um, I like October because October just, it's such a creative time of year. Everybody's putting together costumes, getting ready for Halloween. Um, and especially out here in Arizona, it's finally cool enough to start getting out and doing like long hikes and stuff again mm -hmm. um yeah I, I think that's kind of it <laughs> okay what is the dumbest dare you've ever agreed to oh the dumbest dare i've ever agreed to <laughs> oh God dang, there's been so many. Uh, <laughs> so many dumb dares. <laughs> uh, um, or just dares. Uh, naked zip lining at dusk while Sergeant Major was still on site. <laughs> wow, that's bold. 
Yeah, luckily he wasn't looking that way, and I don't think he ever found out about it because I'm still alive to tell the tale. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, and do you have your own Netflix account, or do you use someone else's? I have my own that everybody else works off of. Very nice. Okay. All right. Now, moving into the topic a little bit, I have looked up some random sci-fi terms. Tell me, do these exist in real life, or are they based on some sort of real-life uh, theory but hasn't been proven yet okay you ready all right hyperdrive does not exist and may not depending on how the physics of the universe actually work okay warp speed warp speed is based on well most people think warp speed they think star trek okay. um but the term warp does apply to again uh, the warping of space-time, so warp speed would be a factor in which how much space-time you're warping in order to move faster than the speed of light. Gotcha. Okay. What about jump drive? Um, jump drive, again, um, well, unless you're talking like a, you know, a thumb drive. Um, when you're talking in terms of spacecraft, jump drive is pretty synonymous with hyperdrive, depending on how the FTL system in that universe works. Uh, a lot of people tend to use both of them pretty interchangeably. Okay. And then the final one, which I just associated with the name of a show, but apparently is also a noun, maybe, is Stargate. Okay. Um, again, speculative, but uh, Stargate is most well-known for the Stargate movies and television series that followed after it. Um but it actually is a concept that goes back further of it's another form of artificial or stable wormhole that allows for rapid transit between solar systems, usually. Nice. Okay. Well, all right. Thank you for doing that warm up. You had no idea what I was going to ask you. You did really well. C congratulations. <laughs> I, get, I get weird questions all the time. I have three boys. <laughs> Uh, fair enough. Okay, so SJ, you and I met at Tucson Comic Con last fall, where you had a really impressive display of 3D printed spaceships. And you also specialize in writing about spaceships and science fiction, you've flown planes. So tell me about your your love for this subject and, and why you want to talk about it today. So, I mean, I grew up in the 80s. And in the 80s, space and spacecraft and, you know, Star Wars, Star Trek, G.I. Joe, Transformers, all that was everywhere. Um, so, I mean, I grew up with a love and an appreciation of it. Um, my grandfather worked on planes in World War II. So it was just, I, I loved planes. I loved going to air shows. And as a result, I mean, I collected all kinds of books and shows and toys all about real and fictional spaceships um, and airplanes. And I was lucky to, you know, turn that into a career, maybe not exactly the direction I thought I would go with it, but um, I've worked on plenty of real, real life air and spacecraft um, in small parts or in large parts in like uh, flight testing. Um, I was a flight test engineer for nine years at Edwards Air Force Base on mostly heavies and drones, but I worked with a variety of programs there. Um, I also did worked with the civil aviation side of things for a few years. And so when it comes especially to my writing, 
I, I take those things that I've learned about real spacecraft, fictional spacecraft, and aircraft, and so that when I am designing something, I make it as plausible as possible, um, such that if somebody were to see it, they're like, okay, I can see how that would work. You know, I can see why that would work. So, in your experience, what is the fastest fastest you've ever flown? <laughs> fastest I, I I did on a incentive flight back when I was ROTC. I got high subsonic. I got about 0.9 Mach. Um, and the only reason I didn't go faster was because I kind of upset my pilot. <laughs> <laughs> what did it feel like? Like, what is the effect on your body when you're going to at that speed? Really, there's not an effect of speed. You don't feel speed. You feel acceleration. So, I mean, if if they're to kick in the afterburner and just, you know, go for it, that's what you're feeling. But if it's a slow acceleration up, there's not a whole lot of sensation other than just the the bumps that the plane feels. Um, it's acceleration more so than anything else that you feel, um, which I have pulled nine Gs um, in a turn. And that's kind of how I got in trouble. It didn't get to go supersonic. So gotcha. how does that compare to the speed astronauts are in when they're taking off? Um astronauts feel they don't feel nine g's um generally during takeoff they get up to about three g's during takeoff uh three times the force of gravity and but once they're actually up in orbit they're trucking along i mean they circumnavigate the earth in 90 minutes but they don't feel that speed as they're flying around the earth because you know they're in free fall so it, which is the closest we really get to true zero gravity um right now and it's the sensation of it is imagine a uh, as a, a car sitting on your chest and you're just it's just pushing and pushing and pushing until finally it lets up and now you're in zero gravity so wow okay well full disclaimer for the purpose of this episode and i think it probably benefits a lot of people that are listening who may not know anything about what we're talking about. I'm going to be leaning into my lack of knowledge on spacecraft and airplanes uh, because I want to learn from you and I want our listeners to be able to learn from you as, as well. So I will take on the role of the noob. I'm sure there's going to be listeners that are more informed and uh, would love to hear their feedback once this goes live and we start talking about it on social media. But let's start with some fundamentals of identification. And for okay. me, it's when you're writing things down and you have to name and label things. So yeah, let's start there. So this is going to sound really silly, but it's where I want to start. So to me, planes are flown, but if you fly them high enough, they become spaceships, but ships float on water. So what is the name differentiation between planes and spaceships? And should we just call them spacecrafts? Yes and no. Um, so an airplane is anything that flies in the atmosphere and stays below the legal limit of space. And the legal beginning of space is 100 kilometers straight up off of off the ground. Oh, um, okay. So anything past that that can op that can reach that altitude, maintain and operate, we classify as a spacecraft or a spaceship. Where do airplane uh, like commercial airplanes fly? Uh, commercial airplane. airplanes usually fly around thirty to forty thousand feet, depending on how far they're flying. Okay. So about I mean, legal limit of space is three hundred and thirty-ish thousand feet. Wow. So. Okay. 
they're flying roughly one sixth that height. Okay. Um, so whether or not you define something as a shift really kind of comes down to uh, how you define your nomenclature. Um, when we talk about real world spacecraft, we don't generally refer to them as spaceships, uh, unless you're SpaceX, in which case you call your next spacecraft the, the Starship. Um, <laughs> so uh, spaceship is a fix. Is that more like a fictional term then? It is, but also it is more of a it's like a dramatic term it's more of a dramatic term um when you come down to it though ship in general um and I'll, I'll use kind of the naval terminology for this um navy has a simple definition a ship carries crews and small boats or planes so a submarine if you go on a submarine and you call it a ship you will get corrected that's a boat okay a, a submarine is a boat a okay. Rigid hull inflatable is a boat. Because it's Basically, underwater? It's like a vessel? It's underwater, but it carries a small crew. And it doesn't carry other boats. It doesn't carry other craft. Okay. So anything from, say, the size of a... Oh, I forget what the actual definition is when they start referring to them as ships. Um, anything larger, about the size of a Corvette or larger, not the car, but a ship, referred to as a Corvette, um, is referred to as a ship. Because it can carry smaller boats and a larger crew. Um, okay. Now, when we refer to spacecraft, um, they tend to be, in reality, referred to when you're you're talking to folks who work with them. They're referred by the type of craft they are. So, early spacecraft were all capsules or pods. Then you had the space shuttle, and we've kind of moved back into capsules. And now we're moving towards um, actual spaceships. So in that way, you know, SpaceX calling the Starship a Starship could actually be referred to as a ship because it's going to be such a large craft and is going to be carrying so many people, such a large crew, that it could be the world's first true spaceship once it becomes operational. Interesting. So my question that I thought was so simple is actually kind of complex. It, it can be. Um, spacecraft, again, it's a broad term. Any craft that flies through space. Even probes are often referred to as spacecraft. People refer to like the Voyager missions as spacecraft. Now, Voyager 2 is out beyond the helio. It's, is it out beyond the heliopause now? Um, and is the farthest flying man-made spacecraft in space, even though it carries no people on board. Okay. So. But it carries like equipment. It carries and... equipment, instrumentation. It carries the very best 1970s technology you, we had. Aww. <laughs> You're still trucking. That's so sweet. <laughs> I always get like when it comes to the spacecrafts that we've been sending out there and even our little robots that like, you know, get stranded on planets and asteroids. And then when they finally lose the solar power and they die, I get yeah. so sad. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the final uh, message from the. It's an opportunity that just sent out. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like, you know, you see that meme of like, you know, men don't cry at the end of anything. Yeah, no, sorry. Um, I got misty when that Yes. Yeah, I think it was the Mars rover who sang itself happy birthday. Yep. <laughs> yep. All yeah. right. So oh, that's... Cold and my batteries are low. Yeah, that was... Uh... Yeah. 
No, well, so, um, I will say. <laughs> well, it is. It's incredibly sad, because, especially for people who like are just naturally sympathetic or empathetic, and you you personify this thing out there because that thing is doing something on our service. You know, it's yep. like a sacrifice. It is. I mean, it is. And those Mars rovers, I mean, they built those suckers to last, even though a lot of times they didn't. They built them to last like a 90 day mission and they went operated for years beyond their lifespan. Oh, that's and, amazing. Uh, it's it's really awesome to see. And it's just like, you know, once we get there and start establishing bases, like, I'm sorry, museums go up around those little guys, you yeah. know? Mm -hmm. OK, so let's talk about tech, I guess, the technical side of spacecrafts. Uh, this is another baseline question, but how do they work? What moves them? What doesn't move them? What's realistic portrayals? Um, you know, can we propel ourselves through space on a spacecraft with little air bursts? You know, tell me all about that. Okay. Well, so, I mean, that's, you know, that, that actually is a really good question. So currently the majority of spacecraft are propelled using what we refer to as just chemical rockets. Um, Two chemicals come together, they produce a nice explosive reaction, and that is what pushes it. We also have, um, most spacecraft have something called a reaction control system, which is, like you said, little puffs of air that help to maneuver it, to change orientation, to push it aside, that kind of thing. And those can be minimally powerful to pretty powerful in, um, to, to, get the, to get them around. Um, one of the big things is we want to get to more energetic propulsion systems that use less fuel. So a big term that we'll hear is delta V. Delta V is the change in velocity that a particular engine will generate. And then there's also fuel efficiency. So mm. um, in science fiction, we hear a lot of various terms thrown about in terms of how ships maneuver ion drive used to be like the big science fiction um engines i guess ion drives ion drives well ion drives are great for fuel efficiency but they have really poor delta v um they're not fast accelerating um so then people really looked at like fusion rockets and plasma rockets well those are great for that delta v but they tend to be fuel hogs so there's mm -hmm. some methods in between and when you really look back at some of the history of um spacecraft concepts there's some interesting ones i mean there's ones where you basically just stick an open nuclear reactor at the end of your spacecraft and pass water over it it flash boils the water and moves you along and if you think that one's nuts you should look up orion engines which is basically a ship with a giant set of uh shock absorbers and a plate at the back end that you drop nuclear bombs out of wow yeah the orion concept is we put some serious effort into that concept and then just never went ahead with it because of, you know, awesome. cost. Though it sounds expensive. <laughs> it, it, well, it, yes and no. It, okay. it, would, it wouldn't be, especially when you consider the amount of cargo you could move. It was actually a serious contender for getting man to the moon in the 60s was to build an Orion rocket. But getting all the cargo up there, getting it started, um, it would have been able to move a massive amount of cargo to and from the moon. Gotcha. So yeah. when you're, so what you oh, need then, <laughs> you need something to get you off earth, right? But also is a, like, doesn't, isn't too heavy, doesn't burn too fast. And then when you're up in the space, it's like controlled falling or, or just floating. Well, once you're, when you're in orbit, 
orbit is a controlled fall. Um, orbit, you are constantly falling, but you are moving fast enough along the surface of the Earth that you're in free fall, and it's very close to zero gravity. Now, if you are transiting between stellar bodies, so going to the moon, going to Mars, if you are not under thrust, you are in zero gravity. You are relatively zero gravity because gravity just keeps going forever, but the it falls off the further away you go, keeps square law. Um, okay. So you don't feel it as much the further you away, away you get from a planet. Um, so you are effectively in microgravity or zero gravity. So usually microgravity, but majority of people just refer to zero. Um, if you were to take your plane that you've flown and just like like Star Wars, you just take your plane and you just fly it straight up towards the sky, what would happen to you? Well, in a Cessna, I would fall down and die. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I don't... <laughs> Um, in the fastest plane that I've been aboard, um, again, you'd hit about 50, 60,000 feet and the engines would just say, nope, we're, we're air breathing engines. We're not going to go any further. So, um, but if you were to take a, a spacecraft, you were to take, say like an X-Wing and just go straight up and just keep on going. Um, as long as you're under thrust, you would feel the force of that thrust pushing on you and it would feel like gravity um but as soon as you cut thrust now you're floating um and if you break um the there's a term for it and it's going to drive me crazy if i cannot think of it um <laughs> the minimum speed to escape earth the escape velocity, um, okay. which is about 11 kilometers per second, a little more. Um, if you were to hit escape velocity, get past the Earth, get to the point where Earth's gravity is not pulling you back, cut thrust, again, you'll be floating, assuming you don't have some form of artificial gravity on board. So, Okay. Um, so you could get up there, but you might not like it once you're up there because that ship's probably not equipped to support someone who's no longer like, right. oxygen and all that stuff. Right, because there, yeah, there is no oxygen in space. So, I mean, well, nothing you can access and use. Um, and and it's one of those things when people talk about space and, you know, where space begins. And there was um, there was a manga and then an anime called Planets, uh, Planet ES, that was about a astronaut whose job, he was a garbage collector. He collected space debris um, in order to make space more accessible. And he kind of goes on a vision quest at one point, and he he realizes, and actually it's not him, it's one of his crewmates, and then him in the, it, it differs between the manga and the anime, um, where he's like, you know, there is no limit to space. Everything is in space. Mm -hmm. It is only our perception of where space begins and ends that changes things. So it's like, you know, Sometimes people refer to Earth as spaceship Earth because it is traveling through space, through the solar system, through the galaxy, um, carrying all 8 billion of us now. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so so what, what you're telling me is maybe the fantastical side of Star Wars is the ability to fly in a plane-like device or whatever um, vessel up. Maybe I'm using the wrong terms. Is vessel just a? I know that the ship people are going to be mad at me. Vessel works too. I mean, okay. yeah. I mean, the, the fantastical bit of most 
um, space opera science fiction is the fact that they have these spacecraft and spaceships that are able to routinely go from surface to space to transiting to between planets and back again. And some show it more plausibly and realistically than others. Um, others make it just such a, a normal matter of fact thing that it's yeah. just like, it's just, just like going to the airport, getting in a plane yeah. and flying away, you know? Jedi jumping from planet to planet for their little missions. Okay. What would you say is the most like the re realistic, I guess you can say interpretation of this concept? Um, on screen right now, I would have to say, um, well, I mean, it's over now, but The Expanse did a very good job of showing what um, an interplanetary society would be and in terms of how movement goes, especially because they were doing things like, hey, we're under drift, so everybody's floating. Hey, we're under thrust, so now people are moving around under thrust, so they're able to walk. Um Though in the books, they make it pretty clear. It's like, yeah, we're moving at one-third thrust gravity. Um, and then they do things like flipping birds, which is – and this is one of those things that a lot of people have a hard time wrapping their brain around brain around, because science fiction has programmed them to say, oh, you just keep pointing at your direction and go, go, go. Well, no, halfway, you got to flip around and start decelerating. Oh, if you, so you don't crash land. Exactly. And – um also, so you put yourself in the right velocities, and there's all kinds of things like that. Um, another good example, and you don't see a lot of it in the movie, is um, The Martian. I think it did a pretty good job of displaying a spacecraft or a spaceship transiting between Earth and Mars and, you know, what's necessary to, to do that. Um, Andy Weir in the book, The Martian, and his latest book. Um, uh, Hail Mary, Project Hail Mary? I love that book. <laughs> does a really good job of doing it without it being the focus of it. And I think that's one of the big things that when you're writing something is you need to give just enough information that readers who know the subject are like, okay, yeah, we're good with that. Um, but not so much that it just people are sitting there going, okay, I am bored listening to how this engine works. Um, mm, yeah. I think Andy Weir really does a very good job of that. Um, because he he know he really knows the subject and he knows how to put it into uh, a layman's speak as best he can. Yeah, absolutely. When you earlier you were talking about how orbiting is free falling, controlled free, free falling. So if something orbits and they it, it breaks, does it fall to Earth's surface? Not necessarily. Um, there's a ton of dead satellites up. In, I mean, multiple tons, but there's a significant number of dead satellites, pieces of spacecraft that have come off that are just still sitting up there um and if i remember correctly somebody recently did the math to say that uh the ascent module of the eagle space of the eagle lander for um apollo 11 might still be in orbit around the moon um oh. yeah um now that's uh, that's assuming a whole, he made a whole lot of assumptions to do that um because that's, again, that's one of those kind of holy grails of uh, the space race is like, okay, we know where the, the descent module is. Where's the ascent module? Is it still in orbit? Is it, did it crash land? Will, you know, will, we, will we ever find it kind of thing? Um, so a lot of people kind of are curious about that. But 
one of the things that most of the space agencies are looking into now is how do we get rid of a lot of that debris that's up mm -hmm. in orbit? Um, because it's going to create a traffic hazard the more we start launching things on a regular basis. Well, so my thought on that is, well, where do we put our trash now? It's in the ocean or in the ground. And I'm like, I'm surprised we aren't sending our trash up and turning space into our, our garbage can. Because uh, we can't do that enough as it is. Um, <laughs> the plot of Space 1999, though, that was also a lot of uh, fear of nuclear energy and nuclear power and that kind of thing that drove that concept. But no, there's a there's a big push to kind of recover or deorbit a lot of this. A lot of these really old defunct satellites that just aren't serving any purpose anymore. So that's one of the things that we build into most modern satellites is if they realize that if the satellite um, is ceasing function, we just force it to deorbit. And at that point, it just burns up in the atmosphere. Oh, ooh, maybe that's how we get rid of trash. <laughs> we just throw it in the part of the atmosphere where it burns up. Does, is that viable? Uh, it'd be really expensive right now with current launch technology. And that's one of the big things that prevents us from becoming more of an interplanetary thing is just the costs. Um, yeah. The cost of putting something in orbit is still pretty expensive. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So then what in the real world would you say is the most advanced spacecraft? <sighs> What gets us closest to sci-fi? And, and see, that's kind of a hard question because um, in terms of spacecraft, there's going to be some people who are going to argue Artemis, which is the, well, the Artemis mission that just went up with the current Orion spacecraft. It's not an Orion, the Orion capsule that NASA launched. Um, but when you really look at it, other than the computer systems on board, it's a lot of space shuttle tech. So it's 40-ish year old technology. They are still using modified solid rocket boosters and space shuttle main engines. And while it is a technologically advanced spacecraft compared to the space shuttle, it's not that much more advanced. Um, the SpaceX Starship that is coming up is in my opinion once it reaches an operational readiness will be a more advanced spaceship in that it will be able to transit from earth to mars um oh. that is the point of that spacecraft um but i i think when it comes down to it in terms of what are some of like the most major advancements in space travel in the last say 10, 20 years, it's been the, the recovery of the boosters that SpaceX has done. Um, because you gotta realize when we were first launching spacecraft in the 60s, 70s, and even really up until the 80s, most of your launch system was destroyed. You know, um, mm -hmm. you were destroying your first stages and your second stages, they were burning up on entry or they were crashing into the ocean. Um, because we didn't have a good way to recover them. The space shuttle was really the first operational spacecraft that was mostly reusable. But even then, you we were ditching the external tank and letting that burn up. We were landing the solid rocket boosters in the ocean, which required a ton of cleanup and rework to get them reusable. Um, and 
with SpaceX and their ability to land the drag the the dragons the capsule the the Falcon Nine rockets back at basically basically landing them back at the launch site that was a huge cost savings and a huge technological achievement um and that's one of the things that they're really pushing for with starship is to be able to keep reusing it and so it's the reusability of the majority of the launch vehicle that is the next that is the current mm. next the innovation vehicle. current innovation right yeah uh, so i mean because we've been trying to do like space planes since the 70s 80s and just haven't come up with a real viable way of, of doing it yet um we've come close but you know just not quite there yeah so living in arizona you've seen the spacex ships or crafts when they're being sent off in california have you seen mm -hmm. those in our night sky Oh yeah, I've seen those launches. They're they're awesome. I, I one time I actually saw a uh, the Starlink, their satellite system, their mm -hmm. uh, satellite communication system deploying. Um, I was at a park with uh, my son's practice, and these parents were freaking out, pointing up at the sky, going, "What's that? What's that?" And I'm looking up, and I'm going, "Huh, that's interesting." And just seeing how all these little points of light are expanding out, and I'm like, "Oh, it's a Starlink satellite. It's a uh, it's it's expanding out the, the array." Um, it's yes, being we just caught it at right just the right time to get the reflection from the sun down and see it mm -hmm. so it's pretty spectacular to watch um especially it is know. it's absolutely it's amazing so i've seen it maybe two or three times now and it's crazy because like you're right the, the weather conditions are so perfect that we're able to see it down in southern arizona and when i first saw it because you it leaves a trail and i think it's ice crystals that are still illuminated by the sun i don't know <laughs> i'm just going over what someone told me yeah, it's it's the it's the the smoke plume and the ice crystals that you're seeing. So yes, okay, and so then what happens is it looks like if you don't know what you're looking at, it looks like some giant mythological god is holding a flashlight. <laughs> <laughs> and when I first saw that, I'm like, <gasps> like I felt like a caveman back in the day discovering the solar eclipse. You know what I mean? Like where yeah. you don't know, like what does this mean? <laughs> And I, I saw, I mean, I, I knew people like, you know, when, you know, during like one of the last ones this summer that we got a really beautiful view of because it was right at sunset too. So it was just, it was going through the sunset. It looked gorgeous and people were freaking out going, oh my God, it's the end of the world. I'm like, no, it's a SpaceX launch. It's a satellite <laughs> launch. That's all this it's is. It's just people. business people, just operations. <laughs> yeah, you Although know, what would it look like? I mean, this is totally off topic, but what would it look like if we were, it wouldn't look like that if we were under attack, I'm guessing, I hope, I don't know. Um, If we were under attack, no, you really wouldn't see it. If we were attacking, yeah, you'd see a whole lot of those going off at once. Um, uh, if we're talking like a nuclear attack of like ICBMs going off, but the likelihood of that is actually a lot slimmer and than people ever really, they yeah, that's a whole other subject. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put that on the list. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I think I interrupted you. Did you have anything else you wanted to add? Um, I mean, I've been to, I've actually been to a couple launches in Florida too, back in the late nineties. I saw some shuttle launches. I saw some other rocket launches, um, was there for shuttle landings at Edwards, which was just epically cool. Um, cause I mean, a launch is, is very cool to watch um you see but it's powerful if you're close enough that you can feel it and you just realize the amount of raw power that's going up to push this spacecraft up into orbit um 
it's somewhat humbling to watch. And then to see the end of it, to see a, a, a spacecraft coming in for a landing at Edwards, like an airplane, you know, it yeah. was just, it was such a cool thing to watch. Especially, I mean, I saw it as a kid. I saw it as an adult. Um, I was there at Edwards when they brought Endeavor to California to, uh, well, retire it. And uh, that was that was humbling and just kind of cool to watch. But it was just at the same time, it was such a huge part of my childhood going, OK, there goes the space shuttle. Space shuttle yeah, program's yeah. done. So. That's how I feel about watching launches and even planes when I'm driving through Phoenix and the planes are landing. Because I look at that and I don't just think, oh, plane. I think humans did that. They innovated. They created that. They did that. And it goes to benefit the greater whole, you know, whether it's transportation or space, you know, discovery. But it's just really cool to see that the object that em embodies human achievement. It's really cool. It is. It, it really is. So how does this now? Okay, pivoting now to fictional uh, okay. spacecrafts. Clearly, they are beyond what we can do in the real world yet, or or maybe never. I don't know, but yet, what what problem are we solving with these scientific spacecrafts? Is it time travel? Is it like what what is it that they do that's different than what real world ships do? Well. There, you're, you're also having to talk about tech levels. So if you're talking like near future science fiction, a lot of it is just kind of 30 minutes in the future technologies. It's technologies that we're developing, that they were almost there, and we can kind of maybe develop in the next 10 years and get there. But the, the biggest hurdle, um, other than money and politics, to really developing these fantastic science fiction spacecraft is it, it's fuel i mean it, it's how do we get everything up there how do we build that infrastructure to build these massive ships without having them be just a giant fuel tank with you know five guys with a five-person crew up on the end um so when you're talking that near future sci-fi you're talking your 2001s your 2010s um Anything by Andy Weir, the mm -hmm. the Expanse, even um, a lot of it comes down to what what's the drive system that's making it real. Um, ben Bova, in his uh, Grand Tour series, it was all about fusion rockets. Um, that was the big advancement that made it so people could just go, just go, you know, um, and really innovate space travel. But once, but you still had to use more conventional means to get into space because fusion rockets are um leave a bit of a radiation trail <laughs> mm -hmm. so you don't want to be doing too much of that in an atmosphere and i i see a lot of like faster than light speed ships that is that's not something we can do yet right no that is not something we were even close to do right now um the speed of light is the speed limit of the universe so that's one of the things that with science fiction you're able to play with is say, how do we get around that? Um, yes. And that's where things like warp drive come in, you know, or the Alcubre drive, if you want to get to the, the more scientific name, um, warping space to move faster than the speed of light. Hyperspace, it, okay, there's, a, there's another universe alongside ours, and there's either portals to get through or we can punch through and we can move faster than the speed of light. Oh, uh, tachyons. We know tachyons, or we theorize tachyons exist, and 
tachyons are a above the speed of light particle that we can't interact with because it's always above the speed of light. So it's not breaking relativity because it's always there. So maybe if we wrap ourselves in tachyons, we can go faster. Um, time travel. There was a, a story I read years ago and where ships would travel at the speed of light to a location and then they would jump back in time so it was like you know there were so it seemed like they were traveling faster than light um mm, but there's all okay. kinds of rules around how you could and couldn't do that um wormhole travel um is another means of getting around the speed of light and then there's those that will just and this is what will get a lot of your will turn off a lot of readers who are more scientifically minded or technically minded um saying that einstein was just straight wrong and that the speed of light is not a speed limit it's just if you can keep producing thrust you will go faster even though th oh. thus far all the scientific evidence says no einstein's right so um so einstein's theory of relativity is that we cannot go faster than the speed of light right um when you really get down into relativity one of the things that you start to see is that the closer you get to the speed of light you start to de develop a uh, virtual mass so it's like your ship is getting heavier and heavier and heavier the closer it gets to the speed of light till you get to a point that you just can't get any faster. Um, okay. A simple, that's so a simple. We're, is yeah. that, but is that based off of like, and of course I feel like everything's based off of our own human observations, but that's the idea that there isn't something out there that's faster than light that right. we don't know about. Um, a lot of it comes down to the math and the math of okay. the, the math of, general of relativity holds up it still holds up gotcha. um and we've done experiments to show certain things like time dilation we've launched satellites to study the warping of space-time generated by planets and the sun um so we're like okay you know everything still points to relativity being correct um but then you get into you know more high level science you know your string theory your m theory that kind of thing and uh it gets a lot more complicated and you see, okay, but even there, that's still one of the fundamentals, you know, the speed of light is the speed of light and you do not go faster. Have you seen space balls? Yes. Okay. <laughs> they go like light speed, right? And then they go uh, hyperspeed, I think, warp speed, I can't remember. And then they go ludicrous speed. Ludicrous I speed. think that's what it is. It's the best speed. <laughs> yeah. They've gone plaid. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's my oh, I watch that movie all the time. Okay, so what is the most impractical spacecraft concept design, real or fictional, that you've seen? Oh wow. Most impractical. Mm -hmm. Like for example, Han Solo's um oh my god, I'm blanking on the name of the his ship. Oh, the Millennium Falcon. It's big flat kind of disc ship. Is that impractical or is that actually practical? it depends on your level of technology. And that's, that's again, one of those things that you have to sit there and say is what is your level of technology? Can it incorporate, can it allow for these more unusual shapes of ships? So when you're talking like star Wars tech, for instance, they are at such an advanced level of technology with gravity manipulation to resist gravity, to generate gravity that, you can do pretty much any shape you want. 
Um, but one of the reasons that, say, something like the Millennium Falcon holds up even today is the design looks robust enough that somebody can look at that and say, yeah, I can believe that that would actually fly. Um, whether or not it really could or not, you know. Um, okay. On technologies, no way. Um, in, like, when you're talking, like, seriously impractical spacecraft designs, I, I tend to flush those out of my brain because they upset me too much. Um, <laughs> That's uh, a great question. It, 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 it is, but I'm just like, I'm trying to think, like, and this is one that will probably get me in trouble with some people. Um, and it's not a totally impractical design, but from certain perspectives, it is. The, the Enterprise, especially <laughs> the um, I mean, and I grew up with the Enterprise D, you know, watching Star Trek The Next Generation. But it's one of those designs that I look at and I'm like, wow, that thing is unnecessarily huge for one thing, mm -hmm. um, but the configuration of it just. And, well, doesn't and it have like arms on sticks? Like, isn't that a weak point? The I'm simplifying the description. Well, well, it's one of those things. It, when you look at the original um, Matt Jeffries, who came up with the original design of the Enterprise, um, he had a very logical means of why everything was done the way it was. Uh, the engines, the warp nacelles were made and put very far away from the ship because he's like, those are going to generate a lot of energy, a lot of radiation. That's not a place you want to be. So you want that as far away from the ship as possible. So if something goes wrong, you can just cut them loose. Um, he envisioned it to be mostly worked on from the inside, not the outside. Um, but I see, I know what you're talking about with the Enterprise with like these spindly arms holding on the nacelles and these spindly necks connecting mm -hmm. the the different hull sections so when you see that you're like yeah that that can look kind of impractical and that's a structural weak point um and that is one of those things that tends to bug me when i see designs like that I'm like wow that is a real that yeah that's that's a target <laughs> hit there yeah um, bust the ship um <laughs> but at the same time it makes something but it's such an iconic design that People are able to see past it. Like, okay, yeah, we we accept these flaws. Um, well, and of course, for our listeners too, like, impractical doesn't necessarily mean like we're, you know, we're not discrediting the artistry behind creativity. It's just a fun no, question. No, no, no. I, I, I totally <laughs> mean, but um, I would say one of the biggest impracticalities of most spacecraft design are all the ginormous windows that so many spacecraft have in science fiction. Um, oh, are those weak points? Like oh, pressure sensitive? Significantly, yes. And a lot of them do some kind of hand waving by saying, oh, this is um, transparent steel, or this is transparent aluminum, or <laughs> something else to, to make it okay to have these big viewports. Whereas, like, in reality, if you look at, say, something like the uh, the International Space Station, it's got one module with windows because windows are structural weak points. Is that, like, also where they enter and exit, or is no, that a different part? It's elsewhere, but they have a specific module that has windows so they can observe the Earth. Um, oh, okay. So there's that. Oh, 
because I'm just trying to think what is a really impractical spaceship design that I mean, because there's been some crazy concept spacecraft over the years. Um, so in terms of practicality, like you know the Orion spacecraft that I originally mentioned, um, mm -hmm. everything that had to go into making that work in terms of building it, launching it into orbit, having all these nuclear bombs as ordnance, um, made it impractical to use, um, and also made it politically impractical to use. <laughs> Um, Nerva engines, which is a, a nuclear engine, are more practical but less fuel efficient. Um, mm -hmm. Most, and being a guy who writes about space fighters, I have to say, I do have to admit, space fighters are not practical designs. Um, okay. So that's, if you are writing about space fighters, you have to have a real justification for them. Why? Do you even have space fighters? What is it about your universe that allows for space fighters to exist and be a practical means of doing combat? Um, so you, you mean like shit crafts that go pew pew at each other? Space yeah, fighters. Yeah, your X-wings, okay. your Tie fighters, your uh, Star Furies and Vipers from you know uh, Babylon Five and Battlestar Galactica. Um, <clears throat> And really what it comes down to with those is what's the range? What's the range of your combat? Um, are you just doing short range? Is everything relatively slow? Um, are you protecting fixed points, not doing uh, space combat in the middle of nowhere? Um, so that's that's one of the ways you can kind of get around that. But yeah, in general, space fighters are impractical. And I hate to say that because I love them. They're awesome. You know? mm -hmm. yeah. I write a lot of them. I design them. <laughs> What's the force required to shoot something at someone else at a distance to make a meaningful impact? And can a ship actually like account for that force? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a depending on what kind of technology you're using. You, you if you take a rifle into space and mm -hmm. you fire it, that bullet's going to keep going. And if you know where your enemy is going to be, where your target is going to be, you can calculate how fast to shoot it, what angle to shoot it at, so that it will still hit and do damage. Okay. Okay. Um, and that's one of those things that shows like the Expanse do very well, um, is showing, hey, we're launching missiles, torpedoes, just shooting guns and seeing where that is going to hit and accounting for that in terms of the, the physics of it. Whereas shows like, you know, most science fiction, they just, they're using beam weapons. So like, oh, whatever, if we miss, we miss. It's like, well, no, that, that beam's still going. But oh, with, no. It's going to hit some well, poor other guy way on the other well, side of the universe. Energy weapons, at least, energy weapons tend to dissipate. Okay. So, and it's, it's again, it's over distance. So the further you go, the less energetic that beam is going to be and the less powerful it will be. So you can account for that in certain aspects, but especially with kinetic rounds, if it's going, it's going, and you better know where it's going. Um, there's a, a great line from uh, Mass Effect 2, uh, the video game, where a gunnery sergeant is chewing out a couple of his uh, uh, crew going, you know, you don't shoot from the hip. Uh, Sir Isaac Newton is the meanest SOB in the universe because if you miss, that round keeps going. And that's actually a plot point later on that, you know, an enemy ship 
got hit by a round that had been fired thousands of years before, potentially. Mm. You know, it's just trucking along, minding its own business, and boom, gets smacked by this round that who knows who shot it. That sucks. Yeah. That's actually um, a plot point in um, Kim Stanley Robinson's 2312. Um, I don't remember if it was missiles or or rocks, but yeah, they had launched something hundreds of years ago with the intent of hitting their target later. And of course it's really hard to narrow down because mm-hmm. hundreds of years have passed since like the criminals were alive. Yeah. So it's like finding those things. And I mean, it's more than a needle in a haystack. Cause I mean, space is, you know, to, to misquote uh, Douglas Adams, space is big. Space is really, really big. You know, mm-hmm. um, you yeah. just can't imagine how vast and mind blowingly huge it is. So if you're trying to track some round that you fired and you don't have a tracker on it, it's like, well, I fired it this direction at this velocity, so it should be in this region of space. Oh, great. Thanks. Mm. (laughs) So to offset the impractical, what is your favorite fictional spacecraft? Oh, so especially if you're talking small ships, I still, I mean... I mean, excluding my stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, I will. The X-wing will always hold a special place in my heart, even though it does have its issues. Um, I gravitate more towards ships that actually look like somebody put some real thought into it. That somebody said, "Okay, how are we really going to generate thrust?" How are we going to make sure this thing isn't going to tear itself apart the first time it turns on its engines or maneuvers? Um, And I think that's one of the reasons why, especially original Star Wars ships and old school Star Trek ships tend to be so beloved is people look at those and say, okay, somebody designed that who knows what they're doing, and it looks like it'll work. Um, okay. so I, I, I really do tend to gravitate towards those designs, but I mean, you know, the, the classic Star Wars designs I'll always love, um, the stuff from the expanse I love, though it does have its own issues. Everything does have an issue with it, but at the same time, when you work in universe, it, it works, it works in the universe that they established um there are some that are like frankly ridiculous that it's just like okay what were you thinking what what drugs were flowing that day Um, (laughs) that's the fantasy part (laughs) it it really is but it's like so um uh, we got to talk about this with the the current dune movie you know that came out last year Uh, we were talking about the the ornithopters which are just such a cool design you know these kind of helicopter slash dragonfly designs that are so mm-hmm. iconically cool. And we're like, okay, well, what about the old ornithopter designs? And we're like, yeah, the ones from the David Lynch movie just really, no, we, we, we try not to talk about those because they're so bad. They are so bad. Um, is there some, is, is there some validity to modeling flying crafts after like animal an- anatomical biological models? <sighs> Actually, a YouTuber I like really just discussed this recently, and I'd say sometimes, 
but it, it tends to rely on what is the point of the craft. Um, you, you'll see like insect designs in ships or fish designs in ships um, or with, with fighters, you sometimes see a lot of like bird-like designs. And oftentimes those bird-like designs are more because they paint something on them to look like a bird. So it's like, oh, okay, that's a bird. You know, it's a bird of prey. It's a, you know, it's a, that's a falcon. Um, but then there's some that are just frankly ridiculous where it's like, hey, here's this dragonfly spaceship. It's like, well, why? Why does it look like that? And if you have to jump through a bunch of hoops to justify it, probably not a um, justifiable design. Whereas there's some others that were like, I, I'm trying to remember what it was in. I think it was like a, a Clone Wars episode where it was squid-like in design. It had a very conical main body with all these like squid arms, but it was designed to grab things. And like, it was a pirate ship, if I remember correctly. So it's like, okay, I can get that. Um, and sometimes it's done for the psychological effect. Um, Babylon 5 and the Shadow Battlecraft. You know, this was a, these were living ships made to invoke nightmares so that it had a more organic look to it fit and it it, it fit in universe um other living ships um i think one of the better living ship designs would be uh moya from farscape it didn't look like an animal it looked like a spaceship just with very organic curves and um shapes to it so It like I, I yeah <laughs> I hate to say <laughs> no I like your examples because it's one thing to just be artistic mm -hmm. and creative and it's another thing to be able to say well there's a reason and purpose behind having um like the contextual in information that gives purpose to the spacecraft being that way right you know I mean um I knew a friend who and I just remembered this he um the the rebel transports in Empire Strikes Back. He always thought he said they always look he, to him. Those always looked like beetles or cockroaches just with a bunch of cargo slung under. And I'm like, yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. You know, you have this armored shell that then you keep all the cargo inside. So it's like, OK, I can see how he would draw that comparison. But at the same time, I don't think the designer was saying, I'm going to make it look like a flying cockroach. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. OK, so for writers who are writing sci-fi, who want to get, you know, a little bit more knowledgeable on their spacecrafts, what resources do you recommend? Um, biggest thing is, I mean, uh, you know, look online, look on libraries. One of my favorite uh, resources, and I've used it for years, uh, is Winchell Chung's Atomic Rockets blog. Um, and he's, he's an engineer scientist who loves science fiction and he likes to find science fiction that is as scientifically plausible as possible or does minimal hand waving to make their designs possible. Um, so he's his website is a fantastic resource on everything from, you know, weapons and gear to uniforms to spaceship designs to navigation even and power sources. So his is great. There was a couple websites I used to use also back in the day, but they're now gone gone 
Um, but especially if you're doing more near future or um, hard sci-fi type stuff, his his website's really good. But also just pick up books on spaceship design and concept designs too, because there were some interesting ones back in the day, especially for things like heavy lift rockets and old space plane concepts and say, hey, you know, what if we had developed this instead of the space shuttle? Or what if we went this direction? Um, so especially if you're doing like an alternate history type thing, those are really interesting concepts to play with. Excellent. All right. So I have a fun question, like a parting fun question. And thank you so much too for joining me on this conversation. I've learned a lot. You've got me thinking about, oh, no. I have right now I have a, a spacecraft that orbits my planet right now in my manuscript. And I had planned that it was falling apart and I wanted things to fall down and cause issues. And now I'm like, maybe I need to lower its orbit. <laughs> but well, uh, anyway, those things you do that, you know, they're, they're trying to maintain their orbit. So they're like, okay, what's, what's a part of the ship we don't need? ditch that and launch it down to use the force of the, the down launch to push us up into a higher orbit. Um, oh my God, you have to look at some orbital dynamics story. on that one though. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So oh no. All right. Every industry has petty drama, whether it's rivalries or scandals. So what is the petty drama in the flight industry? Ooh. anything Boeing versus Airbus <laughs> really oh yeah there is a huge rivalry between those two um it, it is a huge rivalry between those two where they anytime one screws up the other just kind of has to oh we're so sorry <laughs> um, but there there's all kinds of rivalries in the aviation industry so it, it's weird i mean the the rivalry between the airlines and this whole debacle that just happened with southwest uh, mm -hmm. other airlines pointed at them going hey this is why we don't use that model anymore guys but southwest going yeah but it hasn't failed us until now <laughs> whoops <laughs> um, yeah. uh, all right well sj any final words or promos um Look for me on Amazon, uh, SJ Shower and the Spiral War series, uh, Spiral War Liberators. The first six books are out now and can use all the encouragement I can get right now to get book seven finished. Speculative Sandbox is a volunteer-run podcast that relies on the collaboration of fellow creators like you. Join the conversation and participate in fun polls and questionnaires on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Interested in being in a future episode? Our DMs are open, or you can email speculativesandbox at gmail.com.